0: can say is, Happy Easter. A graveyard's good news. When I mentioned that title last Sunday, Donna gave me a weird look. (laughs) Good news from a graveyard. A man tells of his experience a few years ago, walking through Greenwood Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. Large, large suburban cemetery here in Texas. Many of the early leaders had are buried there. As he walked, he looked around, he got to thinking and reading many of the markers on the headstones. Each stone, he, marker, he said, summed up the whole life in a simple, simple format, a name, two dates, and then a dash. Civil War generals and many industry leaders in that region were buried next to people relatively unknown, he says. Still, the engravings on even those headstones were the same as the rest of them, a day of birth, a day of death, and a little dash, he said, representing everything in between. He began to wonder about the thousands and thousands of people that were buried there. The markers read, Beloved Mother, Faithful Father, Rest in Peace. Many of the headstones quoted those famous words from Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. There was a grave of a man who said he once was a billionaire. Thirty feet away, there was a young woman who died at age 30 in 1914. The inscription read, Just when we learned to love her most, God called her back to heaven. There were many markers for children who died as infants. One marked the special burial of little Sydney who lived for 19 months. Another memorialized a baby girl who lived for only 28 days before dying on September 3rd, 1890. This is what he said in closing. As I walked among the gravestones, along with my thoughts, It occurred to me that the cemetery was quiet and peaceful, exactly what a cemetery, he said, should be. Today, I want us, on this Easter Sunday, to tell the story of a graveyard's good news in four different acts. We'll look at it as if it's a four-act drama, okay? We all have read the story over and over and over again, but let's act as if it is kind of like a play in front of us. First of all, let's look at late on a Friday afternoon. Act one, if you will. You know, this cemetery in, in, in Dallas, Texas, is long, along with all the hundreds and thousands in our country, relatively all the same. They are pretty well peaceful and quiet. Very much like a certain cemetery outside the city walls of Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, there was a garden cemetery, little, a little collection of tombs that had been dug out of solid rock. And on, in that cemetery, late on that Friday afternoon, just before sundown, they had to bury the body of Jesus. The Bible mentions four times in all of the Gospels that this tomb was a borrowed tomb. It belonged to a rich man. A member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling religious body at that time in Israel. The man who owned that tomb we know is Joseph of Arimathea. Now all four Gospel Gospels tell us the story. So guess what I did? I picked one. Okay? I read them all, and I decided to go with Mark. Mark chapter 15, verses 42. Through 47. If you want to follow along in your Bible, or of course, Daniel has it on the screen. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. He writes, When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been honed out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the Mary of mother the, and the mother of Josez, jo it's Josez. I looked it up the pronounce it right. Not not Josez, Josez. Were looking to see where he was laid. You know, at that time, crucifixion was the most horrible, horrible form of execution known to man. Invented by the Romans, it was designed to be. A slow, painful, and agonizing death. That was their whole intention for these uh, executions. Many times strong men, very, very strong, vibrant, healthy men would last many, many days on this cross. And many times the Roman soldiers would go through and pow, and break the legs of the uh, those who were being executed, the victims. This was meant to further torture and then proceed and hate to hasten their death. Now, the question, how would breaking the legs make them die faster for crucifixion? Okay, I may have explained this a few years ago, but let's, I'm gonna read here uh, uh, from a journalist from, uh, I believe it was Christianity Today. Don't, I can't remember exactly where it was at, but it don't matter. This is what an investigative reporter had said. He said, the nails were pounded through the wrists. I don't think they were ordinary nails, folks. I think they were like spikes. Okay, not like what you see eight to 10 inch nails or ripping nails, river nails would not be that long. These were thick, they were meant to hold and sustain weight on that cross. They were pounded through the wrist, not the hand as commonly depicted, and then into the wood of the cross. This caused excruciating pain since it crushed and pinched the ulnar nerve in the wrist. But it assured that the weight of the body didn't rip the, na- rip the nails through the soft flesh in the hand. That's why it didn't go through the hands. It went through the wrists, okay? Since the arms were thus secure, what came apart from the weight of the body were the shoulders. The moment that cross was set up vertical and down into that ground, they had to dig a hole to hold that cross in place. The weight, boom, comes down, dislocating the shoulders of the victim. This meant that since they couldn't pull themselves up, in order to breathe, the victims of crucifixion had to flex up with their knees, to lower their diaphragm to be able to inhale and then flex down on their knees to exhale. With their legs intact, the victims of crucifixion could stay on the cross, sometimes, I said a moment ago, for days, flexing up and down to keep breathing. But when their legs were broken, he says, they could no longer flex up and down, and thus they would would suffocate within minutes. But guess what? The fact is, they didn't have to break the legs of Jesus, did they? He had the two thieves next to him. Their legs were broken. But when they come to Jesus, Jesus had already died and given up the spirit. But, not, but what they didn't realize in Roman soldiers, by not breaking the legs of Jesus, even sooner, they were fulfilling prophecy, a very old prophecy. Uh, King David in Psalm 3420, he was talking about how God perseveres the righteous man, even though they may be severely afflicted. He says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. A thousand years earlier, a simple fact that Messiah would be Crucifixion wasn't even invented then during King David's time. Isn't that amazing? That prophecy that Jesus' legs would not be broken on the cross. Now, when the body of Jesus was taken down, saying it was In bad shape is a vast understatement that Jesus' body was just in bad shape. Words cannot describe. He was covered in blood. He had a hole on his side. We know that from that Roman spear. His face was completely disfigured, skin hung from his back, uh, exposing tissue from the body from the the severe whipping he took, beating and whipping from the cat of nine tails. One journalist and investigator once said, quote, Jesus was beaten almost beyond human recognition. The real crucifixion was far more violent than even Mel Gibson could portray in the movie The Passion of the Christ. Hollywood, as good as they are in depicting detail and, and, and horrific scenes in movies, can't even come close to what Messiah, what our Savior really looked like after his death on that cross. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, remember that man? In John chapter three, the Pharisee, who came to Jesus by night, want to know, how can I be born again? Both of them wrapped the body of Jesus in strips of linen cloth. And then guess what? They would sprinkle 100 pounds approximately, 80 to 100 pounds of spices, that is myrrh and aloes, sprinkle it all over that linen wrapped in Jesus' body so it would make a tight seal so it wouldn't come off and unravel, okay? It would ensure that those trips would stay together. Now, like I said earlier, and Gary's got a knack for always bringing out parts of my message and I couldn't I mean, he wasn't going to get all of it out of me, but he got parts of it. Gary's good at that. And God gave him that gift to try to jump ahead a little bit. That's all right. This wasn't anything special just because it was Jesus, okay? This was a normal Jewish way of embalming people. We didn't have the modern tech, they didn't have that modern technology we had today. They did the best they could with what they had, okay? So that's how they embalmed the dead. Now let's move to act two, buried before sundown, okay? Daniel just got ahead just then, a little bit. Anyway, the Bible says it was near sundown. Now this caused a major problem because guess what? At sundown, 6 p.m., according to the Jew- Jewish uh, time frame. That began the next day. And what was the next day? The Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, which the Old Testament law forbid. No work. The tenth commandment, we know, we know that very well. For, that's for the Jews to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. But they were not also not allowed to handle any bodies during the Sabbath. So they guess what? They had to lickety split. Get with it and get Jesus inside of this tomb. This grave was fresh, new, and it was never used at all. It was brand new. It was meant for Joseph of Arimathea. He must have been very wealthy. This tomb was for him or somebody in his family, but there was no time. So therefore, he had to get Jesus in there as quickly as possible. Now, think of this. It's estimated the total, between the total weight of Jesus' own body, okay? I don't think he was a really big man by no, by no means. He wasn't obese. I can probably tell you that right now. None of them were at all. His lifeless corpse and the combination of that linen and them spices, that some estimate about 250 pounds of dead weight combined. Can you just imagine Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? They had a distance to go from Calvary, the cross there on Calvary, taking him down, getting him prepped, and then carrying. Could you imagine trying to carry both of them before sundown? possibly dropping him or trying to have dragged that lifeless body, that corpse to get it inside the tomb before sundown. You know, think of this. There were two men in the shadows of the olive trees, secret disciples bringing Jesus's body to the tomb. All right. Now, the entrance of the tomb was a very low, so they would have to stoop down, literally get down low to get Jesus inside of that empty tomb. 250 pounds approximately, no easy task by any stretch of the imagination. And then inside was dark, almost pitch black. It was musty and damp, okay? Uh, About like going into an old dark old basement that always gets wet all the time, and it's totally dark, there's no lights in there. Imagine, that's similar to what they probably had experienced in that tomb. And then close behind, watching after they rolled that stone to the entrance, the Bible says was weeping, and watching Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And they all turn around as darkness fell on that garden cemetery. And inside the tomb, just like any other ordinary graveyard, complete silence, complete silence. The smell of death everywhere. They probably thought all hope was lost. Now let's move to Act Three, Silent Saturday. Question mark, okay? was it really a silent saturday it was the jewish sabbath so there was no work to be allowed and luke summarizes that day very well in luke 2356 he said on the sabbath they rested they rested okay but matthew in all four gospels is the only one who gives us a little a little bit more of what happened on that saturday sometime during that day a confrontation between the religious leaders and Punctious Pilate, the governor of Judea. Let's look at it, this confrontation. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. He writes, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the great to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how and they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone." This is what Gary tried to get a hold, ahead of on Sunday school, and I said, we are gonna have to wait. We're gonna get a little bit more into this in just a second, but could you sense a little bit of worry? I think there was a lot of worry, much less a quite a bit of anxiety. They needed some, a double dose of Xanax, didn't they, to get them through this major dose of anxiety. They were doing everything they could to keep that body where it was. Two things Pilate gave them, okay? Daniel had them on the screen. First, he gave them a guard. A guard? You know, have you ever seen Easter plays put on at churches where they'll have the little scene set up and you have two little, two little Roman soldiers or one with a little, little skimpy outfit and a spear and trying to expose their big muscles? That is not what it was. This is a reference to 16 Roman soldiers who were in charge of keeping guard of that tomb. Any other time they would be responsible for keeping up and watching over a certain particular area, geographical area, that was their main objective. And Gary mentioned it earlier. He told you he's good at this. If they failed, guess what happened to them? They weren't crucified, (laughs) they were burned alive. That was their punishment. So they had, they had that initiative to guard the tomb of Jesus. And secondly, Matthew says that Pilate gave them a seal. All right? This was a cord used to secure the stone from one end to the other. And to hold that in place to that stone, they would use like a, some sort of packing clay or some kind of wax to hold that cord in place. And in the middle of that wax or packing clay was the Roman impression, the insignia ring of the Roman emperor himself, signifying that this tomb was under the protection, under the authority of Rome itself and the Roman emperor. And anybody who tried to tamper with it would deal with the Rome, Roman emperor himself, more than likely be executed. Now, the question is, why in the world did Matthew, the only gospel writer here who gave us an account of that, why did he include that? Why in the world would he include that? It's very simple to answer the question, what happened to the body of Jesus, okay? That's why he put that in there. He wanted everybody to know that they did, they, they moved mountains to try to make sure that body stayed in that grave. Now, there's an opinion out there, and Gary mentioned it again earlier, the opi- an opinion. Okay, the body body was stolen. Who took the body? Well, first of all, many people will think it's the disciples took it. You know, that's almost laughable. The disciples? Really? Where were the disciples at that point? Who knows? Remember the day before, on that Friday afternoon? Like a dog's tail between his legs. You ever seen... The girls like watching the Three Stooges, and many times when they take off running away from somebody who's after them, they take off, but they speed them up real fast. Whoop, 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 and they take off running. That's what, the, that's what Peter and the rest of the disciples were doing. Whoop, 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 out they went, as far away as they can get to save the hair on their chinny-chin-chin. Chin. You think they screwed up enough courage to come back, to come back and overtake a 16 uh, Roman unit, guard unit, to overtake them and steal the body of Jesus, that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. Now, some will think, well, the guards, the Jewish leaders did it. That's even more laughable. They're the ones who made sure the Jewish leaders did everything they could to keep Jesus in that grave. They had no motivation whatsoever to steal the body of Jesus after all they went through. And think of this, if they had stolen the body of Jesus, seven weeks later, in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church as we know it now, the Holy Spirit come upon them, and Peter gave the greatest sermon of his entire life and 5,000 souls were saved. The Christian movement was moving at lightning speed. If they had stolen that body and they wanted to stop that movement, guess what they would have done? They would have carted the body of Jesus out and dumped it right in front of them. And Christianity would have died right at that moment. But guess what? That body, it was meant to stay in that grave until God said, rise, rise, my son. That body wasn't stolen by anyone whatsoever. It stayed there until that very next morning, that Easter Sunday morning. That leads us to the last act in the longest act in this four-act drama, a Sunday sunrise Surprise, surprise, all right? On Sunday, the Bible is very clear. Matthew 28, verse one says, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Mark in Mark sixteen two says, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Luke says in Luke 24, one, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices, which they had prepared. And in John's account, in John 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. It was very early, wasn't it? The women had come with an objective. They could now, the Sabbath was over, they could come to make final preparations for burial for Jesus they were definitely not expecting a resurrection. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had the stuff with them to prepare him for the proper burial. To their shock and surprise and much less confusion at the arrival of the tomb, the seal was broken. The guards had fainted and then got up and disappeared. The tomb was empty. The tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. What had happened at that moment? No one knew for sure until an angel stood before them and proclaimed two of the most powerful sentences in all the Bible. Luke chapter 24, verses 5 and 6, Luke says, And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Mary ran and found at that moment Peter and John as quickly as she could. But despite I told Gary earlier, but what the angels had said, I still don't believe she believed fully what was told to her because we are creatures who want to see things tangible in front of us, so then we can believe. That's just human nature, okay? But after the horrific events had happened two days earlier on Friday, Jesus in the state that he was in leading up to his death, it was impossible to imagine Jesus had, had overcome that and come back from the dead, I believe. But when they received the news, Peter and John ran to the tomb as fast as they could. John got there first, but Peter went on and went on inside. Look at what happened in John 20, verses 6 and 7. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place all by itself. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. One Bible teacher states, quote, I believe the, quote, Peter saw, means the linens were an empty shell as if whoever had been inside had simply passed right through them like a cocoon after the butterfly has flown away. That was what his analysis of it was. Then we know Mary met Jesus alive from the dead. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus met Jesus alive from the dead. Apostles met Jesus alive from the dead. Doubting Thomas met Jesus. Guess what? Alive from the dead. Then 500 people at one time met Jesus, alive from the dead. The message went out very clearly. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive. Listen to this story of a preacher who didn't believe. Listen to this. He said, it's Easter Sunday morning at a cemetery. Everything, this particular cemetery, it's very quiet, peaceful, and beautiful. There are no resurrections yet. I'll never forget the first graveside service I had performed, he said. It happened soon after I became the pastor of the church in California. It was a service for someone I didn't even know. I stood at the graveside and tried to say a few words. When I prayed, I had something like, quote, as we await the resurrection day, unquote. But to my surprise, the words he said stuck in my throat. I barely finished my prayer, he said. He said, I was humiliated. I called myself a preacher and I couldn't perform a simple graveside service. What was wrong? He asked himself. I had come face to face with death for the first time as a pastor. It overwhelmed me. The awful finality of death hit me square in the face. Then I knew the truth. I wasn't sure I believed in the resurrection of the dead, he said. I went home and thought about it. Was it true? Could I believe it? Many people have been to the cemetery and they've wondered the exact same thing. If you just go on what you see, he says, it's a hard doctrine to believe. The odds seem to be against it. No one living today has ever seen a resurrection because there's not been one in 2,000 years. If you go to the cemetery and wait for one, you'll have to wait, he said, a long, long time. He said, as I thought about these things, the Lord seemed to say to me, Son, you've been looking in all the wrong places. Come with me. It seemed as if the Lord took me to a great city, to a grove of trees on a hillside outside a city walls. Among the trees, page turned, on the hillside, I saw a cemetery. The Lord pointed to a certain tomb. The stone had been rolled away. God told me, look inside. When I looked inside, I didn't see anything except for some rumpled rumpled linens and a cloth folded in a corner then it hit me he says the tomb was empty whoever had been there was gone and he left his grave clothes behind you know we shouldn't believe in the resurrection because anything we can see with our own eyes as we have talked about you know everything we see out there in this world argues against a resurrection all we see right now is despair through death and this world decaying in front of our very eyes. If you only go by what you see with your own physical eyes, you'll end up believing that death wins in the end. But guess what? The good old Bible says something else, doesn't it? Oops, forget that right there. No, the Bible says something else. We believe in the resurrection of the dead because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday morning. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. What does it mean, though, that key word, that fourth word in in that verse, believe? What does it mean to believe? Stop and think about that. You can believe anything you want. You can believe. A lost person can believe, not only is there a God, they can believe Jesus Christ actually lived. You can read historical books that there was a man, a rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, and his name was Jesus. He was born, they don't believe in a, a supernatural birth. They believe he was born just like any other child through a woman by the name of Mary. You can believe that through, through secular books, he was a great moral teacher, and then he died a horrific death on a cross. You can believe those things. Say, yes, I believe those things and go straight to hell when you die. Do you know that? You can go straight to hell when you die. No, to really believe in is to trust in, cling to, put your full weight upon, just like this pulpit. I hope it's secured down because I'm going to go for a tumble in a second. I put my full weight knowing that this this pulpit is going to hold my weight up we're putting our full weight we're clinging to trusting into what jesus did and who he was through the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ that's what it means to believe trusting in christ and christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins what's the graveyard's good news for us today one simple thing the empty tomb at the graveyard proves Christ defeated death and will deliver us from death. Did you catch that? He defeated death and he will deliver us from death. Hebrews nine twenty seven says, it is, "It is appointed inasmuch for man to die once, and guess what? After this comes judgment." I want you all to repeat something with me. I am going to die. Repeat that with me. Say it with me. I am going to die. One more time. I am going to die. You can make a song out of that. Quite the Easter message, huh? Really makes you uplifting. I'm going to die one day. The Bible says no one is going to escape death unless the rapture happens first. Okay? Now, look at the screen. We may not be able to escape the certainty of death. But there's always a but, a big but. But we can escape its consequences, okay? We know without a doubt that when we die, we'll immediately, immediately be in the presence of Jesus, to be absent from the body as to be at home with the Lord. One key verse, John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I, Jesus said, I say to you, who, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. doesn't get any more clear than that, folks. There is good news from the graveyard today. The good news that the tomb is empty. The good news that Jesus rose from the dead. The good news the devil could not hold him. That death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. We need not fear death anymore. Death will not have the last word. Death is not the end of our story. You know, many think we're going from the land of the living right now to the land of the dying. No, no, and no, a thousand times, no. They got it all wrong when they say that. We are going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. One commentator said, He said there will be victory on the battlefield. You know, life is a series of battles. It seems like each day, something else, another trial, another battle comes our way. But in that very last battle, that is the struggle with death, we're all going to face, unless the rapture happens, we're all going to struggle with death. There's victory for the children of God, for those who have trusted in Christ and Christ alone as Savior. Think of it, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. Peter, I mentioned earlier, gave the first and one of the most powerful sermons in all of the Bible, and the story is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. He preached to the very people who crucified Jesus. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest here, a, a paraphrase, okay? He said, you nailed Jesus of Nazareth to the cross, and you put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death why because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him that is Jesus on a wall in a, in a Sunday school classroom in California it's written Christ rose from the dead you cannot keep a good man down you cannot keep a good man down that's what Peter said death could not hold him and neither will it hold us death cannot keep us down in closing listen to the chorus of he arose by robert (coughs) lowry let me get a drink of water death cannot keep its prey jesus my savior he tore the bars away jesus my lord up from the grave he arose with the mighty triumph of his foes, he arose of victor o'er the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, He arose. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ arose. That's the good news the, from a graveyard. Always good news. Let's bow together in prayer. There is, anytime you've seen a graveyard, there is good news from the graveyard. For those who have went on, your loved ones who died in Christ, death is not the end of their story. It's just the beginning. And so can it be for you. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life as your personal Lord and Savior, trusting in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you can make that all-important, the most important decision in your entire life. You can make that decision right this minute. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The enemy, Satan, will want you and try to talk you out of it, telling you there's more time to wait. Why do it right now? Enjoy life the way you want to live it, not having the answer to someone else, much less your Creator. That's what, what Satan would want. But the Bible says is the day of salvation. Why? We're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed the next five minutes of life. But if I drop dead right now, I know I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ immediately after I have dropped dead on this spot. If God's Holy Spirit is working on you right this minute, don't hold off on it. You'll know it's convicting you and telling you you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. And that is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else can save you. I can't save you. No other great Bible teacher on television or a local pastor can save you. Your parents can't save you. The President of the United States sure as heck can't save you. Or lawmakers, none of them can save you. Only by what Jesus did on that Good Friday afternoon. He shed that precious blood on that bloody Roman spear, that cross on Calvary, for the covering of the sins of the entire world. He didn't die just for my sins or your sins, the entire sins of the entire world, of those who had lived before, those at that time, and those who will live in the future, as of right now and on beyond. Make that important decision now. You may ask, well, how can I do that? If God's Holy Spirit's working on you, you can say this simple prayer of faith with me silently in your heart or out loud with me, knowing God is listening and waiting with open arms to forgive you and accept you as one of his children. Say this prayer with me. Dear God, thank you so much for loving me. And I understand, I know that I am a sinner in need of a savior and I'm truly sorry for those sins in my life. But I believe what I have heard today. You love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, taking the punishment that I deserve for my sins on that old rugged cross, but by what Jesus and Jesus alone did to save me from my sins. God, thank you for forgiving me. And I'm praying right now you will help me spend the rest of my life serving you and i pray this in jesus name and if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it with all your heart you are now a child of god you're a christian a new christian a baby christian and as a regular baby on this earth they have to be fed nurtured brought up to childhood and through adulthood and so it is in your new christian walk you can't do it by yourself. You need like-minded believers to come help you, to help you grow, to edify you, to encourage you, lift you up, because we're, you're still in this world, a world that hates everything about God and is on the descent, not the yes You're going to want to tell, first of all, a testimony of what Jesus just did for you. Tell anyone and everyone who will listen. Tell them about what Jesus did for you the life he took you from, and a life that you are now going to live, and for the rest of your life. Give that testimony. It may, it could encourage someone else, else to accept Christ as their personal Savior. Then it's all important to get into a Bible-believing church that teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. They don't cherry-pick Scripture and make you feel good to just, to just uh, make you feel prosperous and feel all good that God's going to give you everything you want. That is not what the Bible teaches teach. It teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. It teaches about sin and how we are to obey God in our everyday walk. Get into a Bible-believing church, just like this one, Pleasant View of Missionary Baptists. Our information is on our Facebook page or on our website, pdbaptistchurch.org where we have our statement of faith. We have many great sermons on there. We have so many things we'd like to do in the future. It just takes time like anything else. Check us out. We accept anyone and everyone who, uh, who's trust, trusting in Christ as Savior. You're welcome here at this church. If you can't get into this church, get into another Bible-believing church that teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. Father in heaven, I pray to you right at this moment that anyone who may have listened to this invitation or another great teacher of faith out there, a great Bible teacher who put out that invitation of salvation, I pray no one, would resist that call of salvation and make that decision today to serve Christ and Christ alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.